This is Paul from the Varmints Podcast, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups, and you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to us on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 30 episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. And if you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can help us with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps us out to keep us going, to keep us moving forward, to keep us growing, and hopefully to keep us ad-free. So thank you. Over the course of the two and a half years that we have done this show, We've had several episodes that have involved police officers or former police officers. We've had an episode about the officers who pulled over Rodney King and subsequently put a beat down on him that was, unbeknownst to them, actually being video recorded by a bystander. We've had an episode on Christopher Dorner, the fired police officer who went on a killing spree after a failed attempt to get his job back. We had an episode entitled Little Blue Lies, where in part I discussed interrogation tactics that involved feeding a potential suspect or person of interest lies in order to elicit a reaction or possibly a confession, and how that ended up backfiring in the worst way. In that episode, officers had told a known gang member that a 16-year-old girl had identified him in a crime, and they identified her by her name, and this ultimately led the gang member to seek her out and shoot her in front of her house. When the truth was, she never named anyone. She didn't identify anybody. As a matter of fact, if she had any useful information, she had been refusing to snitch on anybody. It was a lie that the officers told the suspect, which ended up costing her her life. In episode 74, we discussed William Leisure, dubbed the dirtiest cop in L.A. He had committed crimes ranging from theft, fraud, perjury, and murder, and he had been convicted of stealing yachts and orchestrating three hired hits 
all while having been a cop on the LAPD for 17 years. Of course, there was our four-part series on Texas death row inmate Rodney Reed, who was convicted of killing Stacey Stites. There had been strong evidence pointing to her fiancé, Giddings police officer, or former Giddings police officer, Jimmy Fennell, having possibly been responsible for her murder. Years later, Fennell himself was convicted of sexual assault and served almost 10 years in prison for it and his career in law enforcement was effectively over. Today, of course, it is much more difficult for a police officer to be getting away with the things that these officers did, though that's not to say instances of police brutality and malfeasance don't occur. Nowadays, there is a better chance of an officer being held accountable for his or her actions, due largely in part to the sheer numbers of cameras that there are out there. Cell phones, surveillance, body cams, the chance of an officer being made to take responsibility for their actions is much greater now than ever before. When an investigation begins, it's one of the first things to look for. Video footage. Last June, when myself and another vehicle were hit by someone driving a Nissan Frontier, who then decided to flee the scene of the crash, when the police got there, the first thing they did was look around for cameras which they found on the apartment unit on the corner. They talked to the person who lived there and they were able to see the crash happen, but it wasn't at a good enough angle to pick up the license plate of the truck. Well, our case today takes place back in the 1980s, a time before video surveillance and cell phones were everywhere. Someone along the way asked me to cover the story a long time ago. I can't remember who it was, So if you're listening, make sure you message me to remind me. It's a story about a cop who took full advantage of his authority to terrorize women as they made their way up and down the stretch of highway he was responsible for patrolling. And we're going to talk about this cop in this 130th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the California Highway Predator. There is a stretch of freeway that cuts through San Diego, California, where you'll find a pair of bridges known as the Peña-Quitos Creek Arch Bridge. I hope I said that right. Peñas-Quitos. It is a reinforced concrete open spandrel arch bridge that was originally built more than 70 years ago in 1949. It features an arch span of 220 feet, or 67 meters, and is used today as a bike path and a service road. The new section of the bridge was completed 17 years later in 1966 and was utilized as the southbound lanes of the 395 freeway. In 1976, when the 15 freeway was being widened, the bridge was completely replaced by a concrete girder bridge. The two bridges are parallel to one another with the new bridge situated higher than the original. In 1995, the bridge was officially renamed the Karanat Memorial Bridge. And adjacent to the bridge, there is a side road that was renamed Caraway, as well as a nearby memorial garden. Some have said that they've experienced some sort of paranormal phenomenon near the location, such as sounds of a voice, 
as well as extreme hot and extreme cold spots. For those who believe, ghosts are said to haunt specific locations or people where they were associated with in life, who don't necessarily want to leave or be gone from those places or people for one reason or another. Like something in life was left incomplete, or their departure from their life on earth into the afterlife was abrupt or unexpected. I'm a part of the 82% of the population that does not generally believe in ghosts, but I'm not opposed to talking about the stories and the folklore behind those places that are purportedly haunted, especially if it's a component of a story that I want to share with you. Kara Evelyn Knott was born February 11, 1966, in the city of Ventura, California. By the time she was 20 years old in 1986, she was living at home still with her parents, Joyce and Sam, in El Cajon, a city located in San Diego County. She was a junior at San Diego State. She had a passion for the environment and for animals. She had a part-time job at the San Diego Zoo, and she hoped one day to become a teacher. She had a boyfriend. His name was Wayne Bautista, and he lived in Escondido, which is about 30 to 35 miles or 48 to 56 kilometers north of where she lived. The distance between them as the crow flies would have been a lot shorter than that, but in between El Cajon and Escondido sits Scripps Ranch. And the only real way to go is to take the freeways and go around the ranch itself, thereby adding several miles to the actual drive. Both Kara and Wayne were on their winter break from school. But on the day that our story takes place, Wayne had been battling with the flu, so he really wasn't feeling great. It was two days after Christmas that year, December 27th, 1986. Kara made the drive up to Escondido to visit Wayne. She had made a stop to make a call to her mom, Joyce, and to ask a couple of questions about what she should get for Wayne to help him feel better. What kinds of medications, what sorts of foods, things of that sort. Kara eventually made it to Wayne's and spent a few hours with him. And then at around 8 p.m. that evening, Kara called her dad, Sam, to tell him that she was headed back, a drive that should have only taken her at the most an hour, but probably less than that, 35 to 40 minutes. At night, there's probably not a lot of traffic. So when a couple hours had passed and Kara still hadn't shown back up at home, her dad's concerns started to grow. By 10 p.m., Sam started having this terrible feeling in the pit of his stomach. So he got up and he told Joyce that he was going to go look for Kara. Joyce stayed home to make phone calls. She called up Wayne to ask if he had any idea where Kara was at. He said that he had not spoken to her since she left and he didn't have a clue where she might be. So several members of Kara's family jumped in their cars to help Sam search the various stretches of freeway between Escondido and El Cajon. They spent the whole night looking for any sign of Kara or her white VW bug. And while they were all doing that, Joyce was at home going through the phone book, making calls to all the area hospitals and to police stations 
to see if Kara may have been brought in, but that was a dead end too. Nobody matching Kara's description had checked in at any of the places that she called. At first light, Kara's family resumed their search of the area between El Cajon and Escondido, specifically looking for any place that might be sort of obscured or hidden from the main lanes of the freeway. They were on the 15 when they took the exit, which led to Mercy Road and the Peñasquitos Creek Arch Bridge. The underside of the bridge is very dark and desolate, with a lot of overgrown brush along the bottom of the bridge in the dry creek bed. It is not a place anyone would want to spend any amount of time at, especially at night. And because of how unnerving and eerie the area under the bridge was, the officers who patrolled the area nicknamed it the tombs, just because of the way it appeared when you're standing there underneath the bridge looking up. Well, down in the creek bed, underneath the freeway that passed overhead, hidden from view, Kara's VW bug was discovered parked there, abandoned. Her driver's side window was rolled down about halfway, which indicated that she may have opened it in order to speak to someone. This was December. It's winter. It's cold. And it just wasn't likely that Kara was driving with her window down. Her car keys were still in the ignition, and her handbag was on the passenger seat. The entire area was cordoned off and a search was launched. Eventually, one of the searchers peered over the edge of the creek bridge and saw what appeared to be the body of a woman laying on the ground some 70 feet or 21 meters down. Kara's dad, Sam, who was there at the location when this woman's body was discovered, he was able to tell from the looks on the faces of the officers helping to search for his daughter that what they were going to tell him was going to be bad. Sam broke the silence and asked them if they found her. And they said yes, and that they were sorry. The case of Kara's murder was puzzling from the beginning, as there did not seem to be any real logical explanation as to why Kara would drive off the freeway towards the underside of this bridge. There is absolutely nothing down there and no reason for her to be there. Not at that time of the evening, not really at any time of the day, to be honest, as even the most seasoned officers investigating anything that might be going on under the bridge really don't care to spend any more time than they have to themselves down there. And what added to the mystery was the fact that there did not seem to be an apparent motive for Kara having been killed. Her autopsy revealed that there was no sign that she had been sexually assaulted. Her purse was still in the vehicle, untouched, so robbery wasn't a motive. It was like someone caused Kara to pull over, and then she was attacked. She was strangled. This was determined to be her cause of death, as indicated by ligature marks that were around her neck. And when she was tossed over the side of the bridge, she was already deceased. She also had a very strange, dark bruise, just above her right brow. And beyond that, 
The only other bit of evidence inside the vehicle was a receipt from a gas station about 15 miles or 24 kilometers away. When investigators spoke to those who were working at the gas station the night that Kara came in, they remembered seeing her and her car. She was alone and all seemed well and nothing unusual happened while she was there. She paid for her gas, she filled up and drove off. Back on the bridge close to where Kara's body was found, two strange skid marks were noticed by crime scene investigators. They weren't quite sure what the skid marks meant, if anything at all, if they were related in some way to Kara's death, and just by looking at them, they really couldn't tell if they were breaking skid marks or accelerating skid marks. But they made note of them, they took pictures and took measurements just in case. It was clear that the skid marks were wide enough apart to not have been made by Kara's bug. Eventually, they would figure out what car made those skid marks. Everything at the scene pointed to Kara getting off the freeway exit ramp voluntarily. She had pulled over and she rolled down her window about halfway. This led investigators to believe that the only way that she would have done any of that is if the person who stopped to talk to her was somebody that Kara knew and trusted. And because of this, it caused Kara's boyfriend, Wayne, to come under police scrutiny. On top of that, he was the last known person other than the gas station attendants to have seen Kara alive. She had spent a good part of the day with him into the evening that night, and he had said that he was sick with the flu and she was helping to take care of him. She had called her parents to tell them that she was on her way home. She left his house, and he stayed home the rest of the evening, and that was the last time he ever saw her. Wayne's sister corroborated his alibi. In order to try and garner help from the public, the police asked a local news station to film a segment for Crime Stoppers that featured Kara's case. So they reenacted the events of that evening, including an actress pulling up into a gas station driving a VW Bug that was similar to Kara's. The idea was to try and jog somebody's memory that perhaps someone saw something that they didn't know was actually related to this case, but could prove to be very important. In addition to the segment for Crime Stoppers, a local San Diego newspaper reporter named Rory Devine wanted to put together a segment to be played on her news broadcast that would give viewers some tips for commuters when it comes to staying safe on the road. It was a real concern but not just for women, but for men too, driving alone, especially at night. To help her with the video, Rory enlisted the help of California Highway Patrol Officer Craig Pyre. The segment was called, What to Do When Stranded on the Side of the Road. Obviously, it is kind of dated. This is the mid-80s. Nobody really had a cell phone at the ready to call for help from the safety of their own vehicle. But back then, if you broke down on the road, the advice that Officer Pyre gave in a situation like that is to stay with your car, stay in your car, and lock your doors. 
if someone stops to help or offers to give you a ride to the nearest payphone or whatever, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position. You could be attacked or robbed or even worse. So the rule of thumb is to just stay inside your vehicle and turn on your hazard lights. You can keep a sign in your car and place it on the back of your window that indicates that you need help. I guess you used to be able to buy these kinds of signs, but you could even make one yourself. That way, if a CHP officer goes by, he or she can see that your vehicle is disabled and can summon help for you. If someone you don't know offers to help, the best thing to do is to ask them to call the police or the highway patrol for you. Officer Pyre also said, even if you have to wait all night in your car for help, it's better to stay put as opposed to trying to walk to the nearest business or payphone to look for help because you never know who you might cross paths with. Once these segments aired on the news and Crime Stoppers, the calls started pouring in by the hundreds. But the odd thing was, about 30 of those calls came from women who said that they had been pulled over by a California Highway Patrol officer and instructed to get off the freeway at Mercy Road and to pull over in the same location where Kara had been murdered. They reported that the officer would get into their car and sit on the passenger side and ask them questions. More often than not, the questions were not the typical questions an officer would ask a driver that he or she would pull over. Like, you know, can I see your driver's license? Do you have insurance? Do you know why I pulled you over? Questions like that. But rather, this officer was asking more personal questions. They were often sexual in nature and completely inappropriate for a traffic stop. And what do you know? Come to find out, they were reporting this officer as being Patrol Officer Craig Pyre. The same Craig Pyre who filmed those segments with Rory Devine on motorist safety, providing the public with advice as to what to do in a situation when your vehicle becomes disabled on the road or freeway at night. And it really wasn't even Pyre's first time working with the local news media on stories involving the CHP in the local San Diego area. He had always appeared to have a general concern for public safety. And not only that, while filming his most recent segment with Divine, they both shared how saddened they were regarding Kara's death. And to anyone who ever worked with Pyre, the sentiment was the same across the board. He was just a guy who truly embraced his job as an officer with the largest police force in the United States, the CHP. And he was very, very proud to wear that uniform and that badge. As it turned out, Pyre was on patrol the evening Kara was murdered. But according to his handwritten logbook, he was miles away from the scene issuing a traffic citation at the approximate time that Kara was killed. Of course, Pyre is the last person anyone investigating the case would think had anything to do with Kara's murder, but still, those dozens of phone calls from women complaining about being pulled over by him were troubling, and they needed to take a closer look at it nonetheless. So Pyre was questioned about the various allegations being made against him. 
But investigators in talking with him were quick to notice that Pyre had several scratches on his face as well as on his arm. It appeared that he had been recently in some sort of fight or altercation. However, Pyre explained that those injuries occurred back at the police station in their parking lot when he tripped and fell into a fence. And it just so happened that that occurred on the same exact evening that Kara was killed. Investigators were suspicious of Pyre's story and how he sustained those injuries. Because of the location where he parked his patrol car doesn't exactly mesh with the location of the fence that he said he fell into. Because when they looked at it, for him to have hit his forehead the way that he said he did, he would have had to have leapt several feet into the air to hit his face on it. And then when they took a closer look at Pyre's handwritten logbook, which is all written in pencil, it appeared as though he erased an original entry and wrote something different on his 9.30 p.m. entry that night, which falls into the time frame that Kara's murder was believed to have taken place, based on the time that she fueled up at the gas station and continued heading home. So the entry with the erasure looked kind of suspicious, and it was possibly a way for Pyre to develop an alibi for himself. And his lieutenant, this early on in the investigation, absolutely did not believe that Pyre had anything to do with Kara's murder. This is a trusted officer with the CHP, a veteran of 13 years. His superiors were not even going to entertain the thought. Of course, Pyre denied that he had anything to do with Kara's murder and appeared to be cooperative from the start. He was asked for the uniform that he wore the evening that Kara was killed, which he willingly turned over to investigators so it could be tested for possible traces of evidence. I will come back to the trace evidence that was uncovered in this case in a little bit. But as the investigation into Pyre continued, it started looking more and more like that he just may have had something to do with Kara's murder. And it was a fact that his colleagues and superiors were finding it more and more difficult as they got deeper into the investigation to continue to try denying it. On the night that she was killed, Kara was driving along the stretch of freeway between Escondido and El Cajon that Officer Pyre was assigned to patrol. He was in his marked CHP vehicle when it is believed that he got behind Kara, flashed on his lights, and instructed her over his loudspeaker to pull off the freeway onto the isolated area under the bridge. And it was becoming apparent that Pyre was looking more and more involved as they went along because of the flood of phone calls that came in from more than two dozen women claiming Pyre had pulled them over to harass them in the same manner at the same location. Pyre had apparently expressed some sort of sexual or romantic interest in these women. Some of them reported Pyre attempting to ask them out. But when Kara encountered Pyre, something went awry, and the confrontation between the two escalated into a physical fight. The reason things intensified can only be speculated on, but it is believed that Kara may have threatened to report Pyre's inappropriate advances and actions. Then a fight ensued between the two, 
at which time Kara scratched at Pyre's face and arms, leaving visible marks on him. Pyre was able to overpower Kara, and based on the shape of that bruise on her forehead, it is likely that he used his flashlight to bludgeon her, as when you lined up the bruise with the police-issued flashlights, it's a pretty close match. And then Pyre proceeded to strangle her with the length of rope that he had in his car. Once he was satisfied that she was dead, he took her body and tossed her over the side of the bridge, where she fell 70 feet, or 21 meters, into the dry creek bed below, which was overgrown with brush. It was two days later when Pyre participated in that driver's safety segment for the local news, and some did notice the scratches that he had on his face, though a connection had not yet been made between him and what happened to Kara. And he had tried to explain how he got those scratches, though his story really didn't make any sense to investigators. And what's more, it was reported by a witness at a gas station that within an hour or so of Kara's murder, Pyre had driven into the parking lot at an extremely high rate of speed with a very disheveled and tousled-looking pyre behind the wheel. He had come in to get some gas. And one of those witnesses who saw him just so happened to be an off-duty San Diego police officer who would later report seeing the scratches on pyre's face at least an hour prior to the time that he had claimed to have gotten them back at the station. And what finally had investigators looking more closely at pyre as a suspect in the case had to do with the dozens of calls that came in from all of those women to report that they too had been pulled over by Pyre at the same freeway off-ramp as the one where Kara was killed. However, none of them indicated that Pyre acted violently towards them, nor did he display any type of hostility towards any of them. For the most part, most of the women described Pyre as friendly. However, he did cause them to feel extremely uncomfortable with his line of questioning and the manner in which he behaved towards them. Some of the women that Pyre pulled over described him as reaching over and gently caressing their hair or their shoulders, which caused them a great deal of fear and anxiety. And one of the most troubling aspects of this case is the fact that there had been numerous complaints made against Pyre before Kara's murder, but none of them were taken seriously because he had such a stellar reputation as a CHP officer. A couple more witnesses came forward with information related to Kara's case as the investigation continued and appeared more and more to be pointing towards Pyre as having been involved in her murder. One witness came forward and said that he was on the freeway in the area of the murder at the time it is believed to have taken place and he saw a highway patrol cruiser closely following a VW bug. The gas station attendant who was working the night Kara stopped to fill up before making the rest of the drive home saw a CHP cruiser make an abrupt U-turn as soon as Kara exited the gas station parking lot and drove away. The evidence was slowly stacking up against Craig Pyre. Pyre was arrested on January 15, 1987, about three weeks after Kara's death, and he was charged with her murder. 
Bail was set for $1 million, which he made, and he would be free pending trial. For the next six months, Pyre would continue to collect his salary from the CHP, which amounted to $3,025 a month. He was set to go to trial that September. However, in June, Pyre was officially fired from the CHP. But while he was on bail, still collecting his salary, he was working for some longtime friends who owned an electrical contracting firm. So he was still making money on top of his CHP salary, at least for a while. Pyre's first trial would end in a hung jury, so he would be made to face trial a second time. And the second time around in February of 1988, the prosecutor decided it would be better to rely heavily on the trace evidence and the fibers that they believed definitively linked Pyre to Kara's murder, which Pyre, of course, is vehemently denying that he had anything to do with. Even to this day, some 33 going on 34 years later. Let's go down the list of evidence presented at trial against Craig Pyre. The jury was told about Pyre's police logbook, where it was clear that he had made an erasure and falsified the time, as well as made a number of changes to several traffic citations that he had written. And that information would be testified to by the drivers who were given the actual tickets. Those tire skid marks on the bridge above where Kara had been thrown appeared to have been made by a car that was quickly trying to leave the area and in doing so, left those marks on the pavement, and when they were measured the distance apart, it matched up exactly to an official CHP cruiser. And then there was the gas station witness who saw Pyre pulling in to fill up in a hurried manner, looking pretty messed up and disheveled. Next, there was the fiber evidence, which prosecutors said definitively linked Pyre to Kara's murder. Lifted from Kara's clothing were three microscopic fibers that were not really even visible to the human eye, but they were all very unique in color, texture, and appearance that matched fibers found on Pyre's gun and on one of his boots. I'll come back to those fibers in a moment. Two other experts provided testimony for the prosecution that fibers found on Kara and Pyre were a match. They also matched three fibers found on Kara's hand and on her clothing that matched fibers that were found in the California Highway Patrol uniform shoulder patches. These fibers on the CHP patches have an edge made out of a very unique gold fiber. The experts who looked at these fibers had described them as being unlike any other fiber they'd ever examined under a microscope. That it quickly became apparent that these same unique fibers had been lifted off Kara's clothing too. So when the gold fibers from Kara's clothing were compared side by side with the gold fibers from Pyre's uniform patch, they were determined to be microscopically similar. But in order to try and prove that the fibers were from the same source, they were sent to the same forensic microscopist in Chicago that examined the tiny little paintballs in the episode that we just did on Booker T. Hillary, Skip Palinek. And when he took a look at the fibers under high magnification, he found something distinctive about both fibers. They were both made of rayon, 
a manufactured fiber that can be made to feel like natural fibers such as silk or cotton. But Skip found that these fibers had not been dyed the golden color that they were, but rather the color was developed using a pigment. Well, what's the difference between a pigment and a dye? To be clear as to why this stood out and why it was important, I looked it up so I could easily explain it to all of us listening, including myself. According to the bluebottletree.com, the difference between pigments and dyes all comes down to a simple comparison between mud versus sugar water. Bear with me. This is a pretty good analogy. So when you take a cup full of muddy water from a puddle, that water is brown. There is dirt and silt and mud particles all suspended in the water. And if you take that cup of water and leave it alone for a period of time without disturbing it, those particles will settle and collect at the bottom of the cup. The larger particles will settle first, and eventually the finer ones will also settle. This is called suspension. But if you take a spoonful of sugar and put it into a cup of water, the sugar will eventually dissolve completely into the water. And if you let that cup of sugar water sit with the lid on it to keep it from evaporating, no matter how long you let that water sit there, you will never get a layer of sugar particles settling to the bottom of the cup. This is called a solution. Pigments are like mud. They are finely ground particles of color which are suspended in a medium to create a paint or a color agent. Dyes are chemicals, like sugar, that are dissolved into the medium to create a paint or coloring agent. When a pigment paint is applied to, say, a piece of paper, it will lay on top of the paper, forming a coating over it. Some of the finest particles in the pigment may get stuck in between the fibers of that piece of paper, and it may stain the paper. But the particles themselves are physically bound, not chemically bound. Dyes, on the other hand, will chemically bind to paper. It's not just painted onto the surface of the paper, but rather it becomes a part of the paper itself. So the fibers that Skip Palinek was looking at were colored using a pigment, which, according to him, is a very outdated process. And even when they checked other officers' shoulder patches to see if they were similar in that they were dyed with a pigment, they wouldn't find any. So not only were these fibers really unique, they were really, really unique to Craig Pyer's uniform. It is very rare to find rayon fibers that are pigmented due to the fact that the process itself is so rarely used anymore. So it was clear that the fibers found on Kara and the ones found on Pyre's uniform were one and the same. Then Skip examined the pigment colors of each of the fibers using all of the science techniques that he uses to examine these things and chart them on a graph. He found that the fibers were not simply similar in pigment, but rather they were an exact match Investigators even had Skip test some other patches from several other CHP uniforms, and none of them matched up to the fibers that came from Pyre's patches. And with that, this created a definitive physical link 
between Kara and Pyre. The other fibers that they found that I mentioned earlier, the ones found on his boots and on his gun, were purple in color. And when they were subjected to the same testing that the gold fibers were subjected to, they were found to be an exact match to the purple sweatpants that Kara was wearing at the time of her murder. Similar purple fibers were also found on a CHP uniform in Pyre's home. And those same purple fibers were also found on his flashlight. The search of Pyre's home also turned up no other potential source of purple fibers anywhere. And because none of Kara's blood, hair, or fibers were found inside of Pyre's vehicle or in his trunk, it is believed that in order to transport her the short distance over to the bridge from where he killed her, that he actually placed her on the hood of his vehicle and drove over there to throw her off from the bridge. Next, I want to talk about another skip. Skip Sperber. At the time Pryor was on trial, Sperber had been a dentist in the San Diego area for more than 30 years. He was quite well known and respected, not only as a dentist, but he has also been called to testify as a forensic dentist for cases all over San Diego County, which at the time was a relatively new thing. And he was considered to be one of the leading experts in the field, which would eventually become called forensic odontology. Considered to be a pioneer in his work in bite mark evidence, according to an article about him in the Los Angeles Times in September of 1988, of the 48 cases in which he testified on behalf of the prosecution, 46 of those cases were successfully prosecuted. And this includes the conviction of serial killer Ted Bundy, whose Sperber testified that it was him who left the bite mark impressions on the surviving victim of his attack at the Chai Omega sorority house in Tallahassee, Florida. Sperber has been involved in cases where he has been able to link teeth from discarded pieces of chewing gum, from partially eaten pieces of cheese, from a bite in an apple, and of course, bite marks left on a victim's body. But at the time, he'd also been studying the imprints of inanimate objects left on a person's skin. And when it came to Kara's case, prosecutors wanted Sperber to look at the rope found in Pyre's patrol car and compare the braided pattern of the rope to the pattern impression left on Kara's neck. When he looked at the photographs of Kara's neck and compared them to the rope, he believed that the braid patterns were identical. But at this time, nothing like this had ever been used before as evidence in court as it was considered to be groundbreaking in the field of forensics. And unfortunately for prosecutors trying Pyre for Kara's murder, it was a little too groundbreaking, and the judge refused to allow the evidence to be presented in court, ruling that there was not sufficient evidence that the marks in the pictures of Kara's neck could be compared to the rope. Nevertheless, back then, some 30 years ago, Sperber was pretty sure that the impressions left on the skin would be more widely accepted in the future. And at the time that he was being interviewed for that article with the Los Angeles Times, it ended with a quote from Sperber when he said, I don't think I've made any mistakes. 
Well, fast forward 20 years to 2008, and Sperber has had to admit to at least one big, huge mistake. Bill Richards was convicted of his wife's 1993 murder on July 8, 1997. And the case against him relied heavily on bike mark testimony provided by Skip Sperber, who ended up recanting his testimony 15 years after the murder by stating that he had made the erroneous determination due to bad photography and angle of the pictures taken of the bite mark on the victim's skin. If you want to know more about this case with Bill Richards, I am going to put together a short episode on Patreon where we will take a closer look at it. But anyway, when it comes to the case that we're talking about today, Sperber's testimony regarding the rope impressions around Kara's neck was ruled inadmissible. If this were today most likely the inanimate object impressions on skin would be admissible as we've seen wound impressions and whatnot testified to by experts and matched up with objects that they believed made those impressions. Investigators also found a drop of blood on one of Kara's shoes. Of course, DNA testing was not around yet. The blood was tested and it was found to be a match with Pyre's blood type which was, or is because he's still alive, AB negative, and is considered to be the rarest blood type, with only 0.6% of the population of the United States having that blood type. So it was a strong piece of evidence against Pyre, though not as exact as DNA. Some of Pyre's former colleagues testified that his behavior was markedly odd in the days following Kara's murder. Pyre had been incessantly inquiring about the investigation into Kara's death, wondering about the status of the case, if any suspects had been identified. And amongst those he worked with, he attempted to portray Kara's death as some sort of bizarre accident, as if the killer had made a regrettable mistake. As I said, it was only three weeks after Kara's murder the pyre was arrested and charged after all those phone calls came into the tip line with various complaints about pyre pulling numerous young women over in the location where Kara was ultimately killed. Internal Affairs had launched an investigation into the allegations, and while it was found that pyre did stop many motorists for legitimate reasons, almost all of them were female, and most of them were driving alone. In addition to that, most of them were in Kara's same age group and generally matched Kara's physical description. So there was certainly a pattern when it came to who Craig Pyre was pulling over. Pyre's second trial resulted in a conviction of first-degree murder, and his would be the first murder conviction committed by an on-duty CHP officer in the department's history which at the time had been around for almost 60 years. Last August 14, 2019, marked the 90th year since the formation of the California Highway Patrol, and today is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States. Now, there is one other CHP officer that was charged with murder before Pyre, an officer named George Watney. But after two trials and two deadlock juries, the case against him was dismissed. But the FBI was like, um, we'll handle this. 
and they ended up taking over the case. They built up a case against him, tried him in federal court, and Guatney was subsequently convicted in 1984 of the January 11, 1982 murder of 23-year-old Robin Bishop as she drove by herself from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Gwaltney, an officer with the CHP at the time, reported over his radio that he had discovered a woman's body just off the 15 freeway about 30 miles northeast of Barstow. She had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the back of her head. The autopsy revealed that she had bruises on her wrists, indicative of having been handcuffed, and she had also been raped. But anyway, it's another story for another day. Today, Craig Pyre is 69 years old and is currently housed at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California. He has been denied parole a handful of times, most recently in 2012, at which time he was given the maximum amount of time before he could be up for parole again, which was 15 years. So Pyre will be eligible again in 2027 when he is 76 years old. The biggest issue hanging over Craig Pyre, other than the fact that he's been convicted of Kara's murder, is the fact that he has refused to take responsibility for killing her and has insisted that he did not have anything to do with her death. So if the parole board is looking for signs of remorse or regret or an apology for his crimes, they're going to probably be waiting a long time because it is highly unlikely Pyre will ever admit to killing Kara. After years of professing his innocence, at least through his lawyers, Pyre was offered a chance to submit his DNA to a new program implemented in San Diego County that had been designed to utilize DNA samples for the possible exoneration of potentially wrongfully convicted people. But Pyre has refused to submit a DNA sample. At one of his parole hearings in 2004, he was questioned as to why he did not want to submit his DNA, but he refused to provide an answer. Like I said, parole was denied based largely on the fact that he's refused to express remorse for his crimes, as well as his refusal to explain his innocence and why, when offered a chance to clear his name with DNA, that he's refused to do that too. I read this really great article about Craig Pyre written for San Diego Magazine in February of 2007 by Lisa Petrillo, where she describes Pyre as existing on an iceberg. Let me share some of the excerpts from her article with you. It starts off chronicling Kara's father's call to action to fight for changes in the law books that would allow for women drivers who are being pulled over by police to choose where they want to stop, not just where the officer orders them to stop. The laws did not make it through the state legislature at the time. As a matter of fact, the legislature upped the penalties when it came to drivers who did not pull over immediately. As I mentioned earlier, these days, the things that Pyre was getting away with are virtually impossible today, with cameras everywhere, on dashboards, on body cams, and we as drivers have the right to take our phones and video record our interactions with police as well. So hopefully, hopefully, 
what happened to Kara just isn't something a cop can get away with anymore. But still, the law is not on the books. And honestly, I don't even know why it has to be up to the women to figure out where the safe place to park has got to be. How about having men just stop attacking women? That might solve the problem, right? We're always putting the responsibility of staying safe and being safe on the woman when the simple answer is, is to just stop hurting women, period. It's not that difficult to do. You are supposed to pull over when and where you are ordered to. The only thing you can do if you want to keep driving to a safer, more well-lit place, you can put your hazard lights on to indicate that you are acknowledging that the officer wants you to stop and continue on to a place where you feel comfortable stopping at. Some cops might get mad. They might take it as a deliberate act in disregarding a command to pull over. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do for what feels safest for you. I know it's not going to be the same experience for everyone, especially if you're a person of color and your interactions aren't going to be the same as mine. But again, today we have our phones and all of us can record what happens to us. Even though Kara's dad was unable to get the laws changed, he did change the mindsets of law enforcement officers and the agencies that they work for. As by the end of 1991, several police agencies had announced their intentions to adopt a more sensitive protocol when it came to the way they dealt with pulling women over at night. There was just something about Craig Pyre and his abuse of his authority that struck a chord with people, not only in the San Diego area, but all across the country. And the thought of Pyre ever being paroled sent a wave of fear through the community, more so than the average murderer, because he did this while he was carrying a badge, while he was sworn to protect and serve. It's a betrayal of the worst kind. It was a crime that shook Californians to their very core. Lisa Petrillo writes, In 1986, Pyre was a 13-year parole veteran, so amped by his power that he liked to brag, there are two people you don't piss off in this world, God and a highway patrolman, and not necessarily in that order. He was a hot pencil who kept CHP brass happy by writing more tickets than anybody else. Secretly, he was using his highly polished badge number 8611 to stalk young women for weird, sexually tinged power games. He ordered them to his quote-unquote favorite spot off the I-15 freeway and to chat them up about their love lives, often for hours at a time. He'd get into their cars and fondle their handbrakes. He'd take them on little deeper rides into the desolate dead end of Mercy Road. Of Pyre's 2007 parole hearing, Petrello writes, The former patrolman wore a strange half-smile during the hearing. He looked like Mr. Vanilla Silval Servant, the kind of guy the prison psychiatrist praises in his files as a low-level threat to society by dint of his positive attitude. The kind of outwardly passive Mark who those attending the hearing learned got jumped last summer 
by a new con flexing muscle in the B quad. The shrink, his public defender, and Pyre made much of his sterling record that he has compiled for himself at the time after 15 years of incarceration. But the one woman on the board of prison terms was unmoved. Commissioner Donna Henderson ripped into Pyre for trying to con the board, stating, for you to sit there and deny the crime, deny that you have anything to work on, I find incredible. She lambasted Pyre for ignoring repeated prison orders to enroll in a mental health program for anger management and therapy. Pyre sat there and proudly told the board that he had signed up for a self-help course called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. But Henderson wasn't having it, and she continued to denounce him. And Pyre just sat there, expressionless and aloof. But it was clear he was digging his fingernails into his palm, nearly opening up a wound in his hand. And it was probably because he was sitting there getting trashed by a woman. Petrillo continued, For 17 years, Pyre has lived on his own private iceberg, maintaining his innocence and his silence, not testifying at either trial or explaining publicly what made him betray the badge and the public trust. This parole hearing was the first time he had been forced to directly answer questions about his actions and face the Knott family. Through his lawyer, Pyre maintained his right to not talk about the crime itself, though he repeatedly denied it. And he carefully avoided looking at Kara's family. Pyre's parents, Eileen and Hal, made the drive from San Diego to San Luis Obispo just about every month to visit their son. Neither of them ever spoke to the media, and both of them died in 2010. Pyre had a third wife who he had met in 1984, Karen, and within months they had both filed for divorce and married each other. A year and a half later, they had a baby, and in short order, Pyre was arrested for Kara's murder. Karen visited him regularly, for years, living only about 40 miles from the prison. In 2003, she wrote to the parole board asking for Pyre to be released on parole and stated that he could come live with her. But two months before this parole hearing, Karen had filed for a divorce. So why she was offering to let him live with her never really made any sense. And like Pyre's parents, she too never spoke to the media. Pyre's appeals covered a variety of allegations, including prosecutorial misconduct, as well as junk evidence in the terms of fiber and blood that linked him to Kara's body, though all of his appeals have been denied. And as I said, he had the chance to put his money where his mouth is and give up a sample of his DNA to be tested against the evidence in Kara's case, specifically that drop of blood that was found on her shoe to use advances in technology to prove what he was saying, that he is not the one that did this crime. The district attorney asked him for a DNA sample. He was like, let's do this. You say you're innocent. If you are, then we want to know. But he turned down the offer and never explained his reasoning. You know and I know 
that it probably would not exclude him as the killer if he got that spot of blood tested. There is no other reason in the world that I can think of as a person who has professed his innocence now for more than 33 years is unwilling to provide his DNA for testing, except that he is probably certain that it's going to come up as a match to the DNA evidence in Kara's case. Kara's dad, he had searched that night when she went missing until the sun rose. He drove up and down the freeways looking for any sign of his daughter. The police refused to take a report. She needed to be missing for 48 hours, which, by the way, is one of the first bits of legislation Sam not had a hand in changing. It would eventually be Kara's sister and her husband that found the abandoned VW, at which point they made their way to the nearest payphone to call police again, who finally started to take Kara's case seriously. Sam Knott had been jolted awake the night of Kara's death. He said it felt as though his soul felt her die. Then, nearly 14 years later, in November of 2000, as Sam was attending to Kara's memorial garden, located not too far away from where Pyre had tossed his daughter off that bridge, Sam Knott suffered a massive heart attack and died just yards away from where his daughter's body came to rest all those years earlier. He was only 63 years old, and his death undoubtedly was hastened by his daughters. Evidence had been presented at trial to show that in the six months leading up to Kara's murder, Craig Pyre had stopped more than two dozen women on the freeway. He ordered them down the Mercy Road off-ramp, even if it meant they needed to back up along the freeway against traffic, backtrack to the exit in order to do so, and then proceeded to engage in long conversations, sometimes lasting 30 minutes to an hour, possibly even more. And these conversations were personal, private matters. In contrast, when Pyre pulled men over, the stops took place on the freeway, and typically lasted less than 10 minutes. In the month before Kara's murder, two people called the CHP to report Craig Pyre's conduct while making nighttime traffic stops at the bottom of Mercy Road. On November 26, 1986, just a month before Kara's death, Perry Kurtz spoke to CHP operations officer Daniel Mark about an incident which occurred two days earlier. Kurtz reported that while her 23-year-old daughter was driving southbound on Interstate 15, an officer that was later identified as Craig Pyre turned on his red light and directed her to exit the freeway at the Mercy Road off-ramp. Kurtz said that she objected to the fact that the officer took a young woman such as her daughter off the freeway and into a dark, isolated area. Kurt said that the officer seemed concerned about a problem with her daughter's headlights because it could cause a problem in the summertime when trucks lose their treads. She continued by saying, Now that's strange because here it's November and he's concerned about summertime. She further explained that the officer asked her daughter to get out of the car to look at her headlights 
and then told her to turn them off. There again, it made it even darker having the lights turned out. That didn't seem like normal procedure to her, and she was checking to see if this was standard operating procedure. Kurtz was told that officers had the discretion to require persons to exit the freeway because of the danger from other vehicles. But Kurtz argued, it's one thing to be on the shoulder, it's another thing to go down the exit ramp into a dark, isolated area. She was told they would find out who the officer was that night, and they'd get back to her. Two days later, Sergeant John McDonald, one of Pyre's supervisor, called Perry Kurtz back. Kurtz did make it clear that in the encounter with her daughter, he was professional and he was courteous, but she didn't like that her daughter was being taken down this dark road. She was told that Pyre was in the right, that he did a good job, and that making traffic stops off the freeway is standard operating procedure, and that it is in the best interest of safety that the procedure is as such. Kurtz was asked if she wanted to file a complaint, and she declined. Not too long afterward, during an officer briefing, Craig Pyre was actually commended for his conduct in ordering Kurtz's daughter to exit the freeway at the Mercy Road off-ramp because of the danger of stopping a vehicle on the freeway. Two weeks later, Pyre pulled over Donna Ziegler while she was driving her VW on Interstate 15 at about 8.45 p.m. Pyre ordered Ziegler to drive down the Mercy Road off-ramp. Donna's husband was also in the car, but he was reclined low in the passenger seat. Pyre wrote Ziegler a ticket for speeding. He was very abrupt, and he left, even before making sure that Ziegler made her way out of the darkened area of the off-ramp and back onto the freeway, which made the couple upset. The next day, the husband spoke to CHP operations officer Robert Smith to complain about the location of Pyre's traffic stop. He told Smith that he was concerned with the procedure by which they were pulled over onto Mercy Road, which appeared to make whoever would be pulled down there very uncomfortable, and he was angered by that. Ziegler was told that it was within an officer's discretion to require motorists to exit the freeway to give them tickets. Smith tried to reassure Ziegler that basically the officer is in charge and he wouldn't put himself in a situation where he could get hurt or you, the person in violation, could possibly get hurt either. Ziegler's call was interpreted as an inquiry as to the CHP policy on stopping motorists and Smith had the impression that Ziegler did not want to follow up any further. Smith did not consider this call to be a complaint, nor did he notify anyone about it. There were several witnesses who testified on behalf of the defense that a CHP officer at that time had the discretion to make nighttime traffic stops of a lone woman at the bottom of Mercy Road off-ramp, even though it was dark and isolated. LAPD Chief of Police Thomas Redden testified on behalf of the state as an expert witness and explained that a stop at such a location was an accepted practice and did not violate CHP policy. He further said that officers were given the discretion to make these stops off the freeways for safety purposes. 
CHP officers had been killed or injured by passing motorists while the officer was making a traffic stop on the shoulder. In addition, when a traffic stop is made on the freeway, an officer's attention might stray from the violator because of a concern about the cars on the freeway. Based on his examination of the area on the freeway near Mercy Road, Redden stated that this was not a safe area to stop a vehicle. Redden further opined that under the circumstances, Sergeant McDonald's response to Kurtz was correct and his conduct in commending Pyre for his actions with respect to Kurtz's daughter was totally appropriate. Pyre had worked as a CHP officer for 13 years. His performance reports were very good and reflected outstanding activity. He had a reputation as a very productive, efficient, effective, trustworthy, and professional officer. He was known as an officer who always responded quickly to radio calls and was considered a very aggressive, hardworking officer. He covered his beat very thoroughly, and he assisted other officers frequently. Pyre's supervisors received positive feedback from the public about his work and had selected him for several additional responsibilities, including to act as the officer in charge when a sergeant was unavailable, also to receive emergency medical training, and to serve as a public affairs officer. And part of that included making those driver safety segments with the local media a couple days after Kara's death. Sam not sued the state of California because to him it was clear prior to his daughter's death that Pyre was pulling over young women and doing and saying inappropriate things to them and nobody did a damn thing about it. He won a settlement of $2.7 million. Kara's father led a crusade in memory of her life. He desperately wanted to change the way the laws were written to better protect the community victims, and survivors from predators like Craig Pyre. Ultimately, Sam may not have been able to change all the laws that he wanted, but he did change the way law enforcement agencies dealt with nighttime traffic stops involving lone female drivers. And that's all he ever wanted, was to make this world a safer place for young women like Kara. That was going to be her legacy, and it was going to be his. And that will bring this 130th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come on over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there that we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you'd like to share, as well as current news stories and events. We post about our pets. We post funny memes. Please come and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And this week, I would like to wish a very happy birthday to Alfie the Wonder Dog on Instagram, Felicia S., 
and Alice C, who are celebrating their birthdays on January 28th, and Olivia on the 31st. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. And we have an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and that's where you'll find the links to all of our shows as well as a link to our merchandise store. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you all again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. I'm John Lorden. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Gray Hughes. And we're here to tell you about our podcast, Three Men and a Mystery. Three Men and a Mystery is a long-form investigative and interactive true crime podcast featuring three social media true crime veterans. We take a deep dive into one case per season, focusing in on every detail to give you a complete picture. We work hard to bring you in-depth interviews with people related to the case and some of the best true crime experts in the country. We not only raise exposure to the cases we cover to help elicit tips, but also to honor the memory of the victims and recognize the struggles of their families. If you want to see certain evidence rather than just hear about it and join in on an active community discussion, head over to our YouTube channel, Three Men and a Mystery. Season 1 features the case of two teenagers tragically killed on their way home. After almost 20 years, charges have been filed, and we will keep you updated on new developments. Season 2 features the story of a woman who died on her wedding day. Body cams, detective interviews, and family interviews will help us try to determine if she ended her own life, or if it was a staged homicide. We currently have a 4.6 out of 5 star rating on Apple Podcasts and have been featured in Vulture Magazine. Some cases are just too big for one person to cover, so check out Three Men and a Mystery. Visit us online at www.3menandamystery.com, that's with the number three, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. But most importantly, help us help others. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast so you don't miss a single episode, and become part of the Three Men and a Mystery community today. Today.